Well, we have moved past the middle of the year, and we have moved past the middle of the book of Numbers, or its Hebrew title, Bemidbar, in the wilderness. We are in the middle of chapter 21, having looked last week at the first nine verses, the account of the bronze snake on a pole that uh, Israel eventually worshipped as an idol and had to be destroyed, but then the Lord redeemed by pointing it back to Christ, and which is now on the back of ambulances around the world. The next three chapters contain the longest narrative and one we've been looking forward to, Balaam and his talking donkey. But before we get there, we need to finish up here with Numbers 21, verses 10 through 35. Before we read it, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Lord, we are grateful that you are a God who speaks, a God who has not been silent, but throughout the ages has been pleased to reveal yourself to your people, that you have had what it was you revealed written down uh, by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, and that you have preserved it for thousands of years, that we would have such access to it sitting here together this morning. And so we pray that you would, again, speak to us by your word, that your Holy Spirit would come at this moment and would bear witness to the reading and to the preaching of your word. And so to that end, we pray, as always, for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, Numbers chapter 21, verses 10 through 35, has two uh, very distinct sections. So we're going to read them and look at them one at a time. First of all, we read about the journey to Moab in verses 10 through 20. Listen to God's word. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. Then they set out from Oboth and camped in Ai Abarim in the desert that faces Moab toward the sunrise. From there, they moved on and camped in the Zered Valley. They set out from there and camped alongside the Arnon, which is the desert extending into Amorite territory. The Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. That is why the book of the wars of the Lord says, Waheb and Sufa and the ravines, the Arnon and the slopes of the ravines that lead to the site of Ar and lie along the border of Moab. From there, they continued on to Beer, the well, where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing about it, about the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the peoples sank, the nobles with scepters and staffs. Then they went from the desert to Matanah, from Matanah to Nahaliel, from Nahaliel to Bamoth, and from Bamoth to the valley in Moab, where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. And you're thinking, all right, preacher Dan, what are you going to do with all that? (laughs) Well, let's, as we come to this passage, remember where the Israelites are and when. They are still Bay Midbar. They are in the wilderness, but it is now 40 years after the Exodus. And the second generation those that were born at Bay Midbar, those that were raised in the wilderness, the second generation are now on the march, closing in on the promised land. Miriam and Aaron have died. Moses' days are numbered. They are on the move, having left Kadesh 
and leaving Mount Hor, and the second generation just experienced their first victory over the Canaanites, the people dwelling in that promised land. A couple of weeks ago in our worship, we affirmed the biblical truth about sanctification that's summarized in the Westminster Confession, and a part of it has stuck into my mind these past couple of weeks. Throughout our lives, there is a continual war, a battle between the flesh and the spirit. And sometimes we experience significant growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ. But other times, we go through seasons in which it seems like we are making no progress whatsoever. The confession, with much honesty, says, In this war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate parts does overcome. Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you sometimes feel like you will never be free from a certain besetting sin? That you will never be free from experiencing the shame of someone's sin against you? And sometimes you just want to give up battling because nothing ever seems to change. Here's the good news. Through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. The Israelites were 40 years in the wilderness, making little or no progress. But in the end, by the Lord's strength, they did overcome. Don't give up on the battle. Continue to employ the means of grace, the word, sacrament, and prayer. And someday, somewhere, by the sanctifying strength of the Spirit of Christ, there will be God-given victory. So how we battle in the meantime means something. The battle matters. Verses 10 through 15 are really boring verses. They are not part of anyone's scripture memory plan. The Israelites moved on and camped at Oboth. Then they set from Oboth and camped at Ayabarim. From there, they moved on and camped in the Zered Valley. Then they set out from there and camped alongside the Arnon. <sighs> Anybody know where those places are? Yeah, me neither. In fact, nobody knows where they are for sure. If you look at a Bible map, they all have question marks next to these place names. The commentators and scholars all agree that they don't know. There are educated guesses, but no one knows for sure. And then verse 14 includes a quote from the book of the wars of the Lord. And that book no longer exists. A book that no longer exists and cities that no longer exist. The Israelites really are in the middle of nowhere. Verse 19 is even clearer about this unclearness. Then they went from the desert to Matanah. Don't know where that is. From Matanah to Nahaliel. Don't know where that is. From Nahaliel to Bamoth. Don't know where that is. And from Bamoth to the valley in Moab where the top of Pisgah overlooks the wasteland. Now we do know that Pisgah is associated with Mount Nebo, and so it's somewhere in that mountain range. But again, nobody knows exactly where, and it no longer exists. And so you could picture the kids who are in the back of the mini caravan asking, are we there yet, right? Where? In fact, when, my, when we traveled, my girls would ask, are we there yet? I would say, yes, we are now at this tree, and now we're passing the street, and now we're at the speed limit sign, and now we're by this patch of grass. Yep, we're there. 
when you're a kid traveling, you always feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. But why does God record and preserve names of cities that no longer exist? For one thing, historicity. This really happened. These cities really existed. In fact, there is lots of archaeology that is now going on throughout uh, Israel and the Middle East. And every new discovery is further validation of the absolute historicity of the Bible. And the historicity of the Bible reminds us that God deals with the details. God names names. God knows us as real people in real situations. Do you sometimes feel small? Do you sometimes feel like you don't matter? The current world population is 7.6 billion people. The earth is part of a vast solar system we have barely explored. And 70% of the earth is covered by water that has been barely explored. And so whether you look out across the land or whether you look down beneath the water or whether you look up at the stars, you can have moments of feeling very small and very insignificant. But God knows you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows the numbers of hairs on your head. Not only does God know you, he knows you better than you know yourself. And so you may be in the middle of nowhere, but you are also in the middle of God's presence and God's purpose. You are not insignificant. But don't hear that as a humanistic, self-esteem-building exercise. It's much more profound than that. You are not insignificant because God created you. You are not an accident. You were created by the creator God and redeemed by the redeemer God. Before the foundation of the world, God determined to love you. Before there was dirt, God knew your name and determined to love you so that you would know his. All your days were ordained before one of them came to be. Think about that in terms of identity and the identity confusion in our current culture. We're not defined by our sexuality, sexual feelings. We are defined by the fact that we were created by God and that we are redeemed by him through Jesus Christ. And so in the Bible, whenever you read a genealogical list of names or a string of cities that no longer exist, remember that God deals with the details, that God names names, that God knows you as a real person in a real situation. You may feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, but you are in the middle of God's presence and his purpose. That is highlighted in verses 16 and 17, in which we read, from there they continued on to Beer, the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. And so Israel sang this song. You got all that? They are in the city of Beer and God gives them drink and so they sang. This is the beer drinking song. That's what I have written right here in the margin of my Bible. And if you love Jesus, you will also write that in the margin of your Bible. Not with pencil, that's, that deserves ink right there. The beer drinking song, that needs to go right there. In all honesty, most days we really don't appreciate how blessed we are to have such ready access to water. We can simply turn on a faucet and have an abundant 
outpouring of fresh, clean water. The Israelites in the desert were always in desperate need of water. You can go three weeks without food, but you won't last three days without water. Israel was regularly on the verge of dying of thirst. So when the Israelites journeyed to Beer and there was a well provided that had water for the entire community, well, that was worth singing about. Those days when you don't feel like God cares about you, grab a glass, fill it with water, take a drink, and realize that you are blessed more than you realize. Earlier in our worship service, we heard John 4, where Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, and he tells her about living water. Everyone who drinks this regular water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman replies, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, in that moment, she missed the point, the analogy, taking literally what Jesus meant figuratively. Yes, we still need to drink regular water, but we are also in need of living water, the water of life that's available only through Jesus Christ. And just like we cannot live without regular water, we also cannot live without living water. New life, abundant life, eternal life is available only through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts so that we can respond with faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And a spring of living water wells up within us, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Beer is actually the Hebrew word, and it means well. And so here at Beer, here at the well, they sing about the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people sank, the nobles with scepters and staffs. You think about that and say, digging wells is not usually what you think of as the work that princes and nobles do. Digging wells is kind of handed off to the other people, right? But the people are so grateful. So the princes and nobles are glad to be part of this endeavor. There is no grumbling. There is no murmuring. When the community of believers aren't murmuring and grumbling, when everybody is grateful, it's easy to lead. It's easy for everyone to be involved in the process of serving together. And so here the Lord has provided for his people in the middle of nowhere. God's presence and purpose are in the middle of nowhere. And on this occasion, all the people see the Lord's hand in this and they rejoice. And that takes us to the second part of Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 35, and the defeat of Sihon and Og. Listen again to God's word. Israel sent messengers to say to Sihon, king of the Amorites, let us pass through your country. We will not turn aside into any field or vineyard or drink water from any well. We will travel along the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not let Israel pass through his territory. He mustered his entire army and marched out into the desert against Israel. When he reached Jahaz, he fought with Israel. Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, but only as far as the Amorites, Ammonites, because their border was fortified. Israel captured all the cities of the Amorites and occupied them, 
including Heshbon and all its surrounding settlements. Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and had taken from him all his land as far as the Arnon. That is why the poets say, Come to Heshbon and let it be rebuilt. Let Sihon's city be restored. Fire went out from Heshbon, a blaze from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the citizens of Arnon's heights. Woe to you, O Moab, you are destroyed, O people of Shemosh. He has given up his sons as fugitives and his daughters of captives to Sihon, king of the Amorites. But we have overthrown him. Heshbon is destroyed all the way to Dibon. We have demolished them as far as Nopha, which extends to Medeba. So Israel settled to the land of the Amorites. After Moses had sent spies to Jazer, the Israelites captured its surrounding settlements and drove out the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up along the road toward Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, and his whole army marched out to meet him in battle at Edrei. The Lord said to Moses, do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you with his whole army and his land. Do to him what you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. So they struck him down, together with his sons and his whole army, leaving them no survivors, and they took possession of his land. Well, this narrative starts out similarly to Israel's request to pass through Edom that we read a chapter back, and the narrative ends similarly to Israel's defeat of Arid that we read last week. In the case of Edom, Moses sent messengers requesting passage through their land. Edom refused, so Israel had to go a whole different path. And remember that Esau and Israel are family. Israel descends from Jacob, and Edom descends from Esau. Jacob and Esau, the twin twins who fought together in their mother's womb and who continued to fight as two nations. But in that case, they don't battle each other Israel walks away from the fight. Now, in the case of the Canaanite king Arad, he heard that Israel was near, and he went out to attack, and God gave the second generation their first victory. Now, here in the case of Sihon, king of the Amorites, we read in verse 21 that Israel sent messengers. It's notable that we don't read Moses sent messengers, but that Israel sent messengers. Again, part of the focus on the second second generation moving forward. It's also notable that Sihon responds not only by denying passage, but also by mustering his entire army out against Israel. Talk about asking a simple question, can we pass? And getting an angry answer, talk to the sword. But the tables turn. Verse 25 tells us, Israel, however, put him to the sword and took over his land. Do you catch that? Not only does Israel defeat the army, but they take possession of the land. Israel now possesses land. For the first time in 440 years, Israel possesses land. And the land that they possess is the territory called the Transjordan. It's across the Jordan from full entry into the promised land. That's why so much detail is given in verses 24 through 26 about exactly what part of the land they have possessed. And then a third song that is sung from the lost book of the wars of the Lord. So maybe they're not in the middle of nowhere after all. A place feels like the middle of nowhere until you win a victory there. 
there are certain places that stand out in my mind for my life because they are places where God won a victory in my life. Some of those are clear spiritual victories. I can still picture the Sunday school room where I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I can picture certain uh, cabins and meeting rooms and uh, forest paths where the Lord convicted me and rescued me from temptations as well as false idols and false thinking. There's also physical victories. My earliest memory is of my dad teaching me to tie my shoes. I can still picture that moment. I can remember the pool where I first learned to put my face underwater. I can picture classrooms where key moments in my education took place, where I was, where I was when I finally surrendered to the Lord's calling for me to be a pastor and the dinner table when I told my family. I can picture the exact place where I proposed to Jen. I can picture the Gulf Fairway when I decided to leave the mainline church and come into the PCA. And so many more images that flash through my mind. Most of them are in the middle of nowhere, but they're also smack dab in the middle of God's presence and purpose, God winning victories. And that's just personal victories. There's a whole other set of images for victories I've experienced that were victories either for other individuals or victories as part of a group of people together. And so verses 32 through 35 then tell us about more victory and more land. The Lord gives victory uh, over Og, the king of Bashan, and then even more land. And in fact, all this land that they now possess, having defeated Sihon and Og, will eventually be the land that's given to the tribes Reuben and Gad. If you have a good Bible map, you'll be able to see what those places are. But also remember that all of these places have a backstory. And if you have a good Bible concordance or a cross-reference guide, it will lead you to some of the backstory of some of these known places. For example, after the defeat of Sihon in uh, verse 24, we're told that they took the land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, which is the Jabbok River. And maybe that sticks out in your mind. The Jabbok River is where Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis chapter 32. And Jacob was renamed Israel. They are back again. The one true God, who is the infinite and eternal God. He dwells everywhere all the time. There is no place you can go that God does not dwell there in his fullness. There is no time that you can go that God does not dwell in fullness. You may feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, but God is there. And that is why we say that the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to every aspect of life and existence. It's why we can proclaim the gospel in word and deed everywhere to every person in every situation. And the sovereign God of the universe will win the victories he has decided to win. He will not win the victories we have decided to win, but he will win the victories he has decided to win. We are simply called to engage in the battle. And sometimes the battle is clearly spiritual, a battle for the soul, sharing the gospel that someone might come to faith in Christ. But sometimes the battle is also physical, food for the hungry, a place for the homeless, healing for the sick, dominion over the weeds in the garden, education where there is ignorance, a change in conversation where there is gossiping, 
Forgiveness where there is conflict, love where there is hate, light where there is darkness, truth where there is falsehood, encouragement where there is despair. And sometimes a cup of cold water. You may just then be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands in the middle of somebody's nowhere. And the truth will set us free. Amen.